All right, good morning. We're in Psalm 16, if you'd like to open your Bible there. Navigate on your device, Psalm 16. We're doing a series on the Psalms, teaching selected Psalms, bouncing around a little bit. I'm doing uh, Messianic Psalms and Psalms that uh, Jesus quoted from. That's kind of the uh, projection. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. There's a word I was thinking of, but it's gone now. Psalm 16, the topic, David praises God for the hope he has that no saint will be left in Sheol after death. Title of our message, he saves saints' souls from Sheol's shores. Okay, you ready? You going to help me? He saves saints' souls from Sheol's shores. He saves saints' souls from Sheol's shores. I'm the only one doing it. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for Psalm 16, rich and full of the Lord. I pray that we would see him here and his passion for us and his mission to save, that our hearts would be made glad today, that we would leave, in a sense, singing. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agree said, amen. It doesn't take much to get a song stuck in your head. A few bars and you'll be singing it all day. It's a small world after all. It's a favorite, right? Everybody loves that. You ever wonder how many songs you know? I couldn't find a research study, but I did run across some fascinating statements about your brain and music by a university professor who specializes in memory and cognition. Dr. Emily Mason said, your brain has almost an unlimited capacity for memory. It can store about 2.5 petabytes of memory. A petabyte is a million gigabytes. To put that in terms of digital memory, if your brain was a smartphone on which you downloaded television shows, it could record 300 years of continuous television before starting to run out of space. Sort of like the early uh, iPads, but anyway. Our brains are hardwired to latch onto repetition and rhyme, she says, which most songs have. In elementary school, that's why things are put to song, Dr. Mason said. Now, it's likely that Jewish children in the Second Temple period could sing or recite all or most of the Psalms. Uh, I bet most of you know 150 songs offhand, and these are actually very simple songs, and they rhyme in the Hebrew language or, or they have alliteration, and so they're easy to memorize. In adulthood, those memorized lyrics were readily recallable. The Apostle Peter, with help from God the Holy Spirit, quoted a little bit of Psalm 16 in the sermon he delivered on the day of Pentecost. After encouraging his audience to recall Psalm 16, 8 through 11, he said, King David spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we all are witnesses. Peter understood that David wrote prophetically about Jesus a thousand years before the Lord was crucified and rose from the dead. This common psalm, known to them all since childhood, suddenly became a fulfilled prophecy that identified the Messiah. Thanks to Peter's application, we see Jesus in this psalm, and we don't just see him in it, we hear him. It reads or it sings, you might say, as Jesus conversing with his father about his life on earth, and his homecoming to heaven. It turns out to be an intimate love song from the son to the father. 
As we eavesdrop, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus sings praise to his father for the life he lived for you. And number two, Jesus sings praise to his father for the death he died for you. Let's take a look at the life he lived for you in the first seven verses. Now on earth, in his incarnation, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was God in human flesh. Then he rose from the dead in a glorified body. He was and remains forever the unique God-man. Now, Jesus voluntarily set aside the privileges and prerogatives of deity in order to live a fully human life. Fully God, fully man, but when he was on the earth, he lived a fully human life. We're told he was made for a little while lower than the angels in Hebrews, and that he was under the law in Galatians. He could and did generously grow in wisdom and stature. He was always subject to his father. He didn't come to do his own will, but the will of the father. He was not sent of his own initiative, but of the initiative of the father. And Jesus once said, for I did not speak on my own, but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And so we would say that Jesus only did what his father told him to do and only said what his father wanted him to say. This psalm is from the perspective of Jesus, the submissive son on earth, conversing with his Abba Father about his passion for you. And so let's begin in verse 1, obviously. A Mitch Tam of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. No one knows what a Mitch Tam is. In your Bible, it might be translated Miktam. No one knows what a Miktam is. Scholars say the word is derived from words that mean engraved and golden. Psalms 56 through 60, they're all penned by David, are the only others designated Michtams. Together, they were David's engraved in gold records, so to speak. And I found that interesting. I, I, like others, I, I don't know exactly what this means. But David said, hey, here's a, here's a group of psalms that should be engraved in gold. Uh, now, you and I, we would probably pick Psalm 23. We have other favorite psalms or other psalms we're aware of as far as the greatest hits. But David said, now, if you want to engrave something in gold, listen to these. And this one, as we go through it, I think you'll see why it's so rich with the knowledge of the Messiah. So he goes on and he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Jesus' life on earth was full of danger. As an infant, a jealous, tyrannical king was trying to murder him. His sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth ended with men trying to throw him off a cliff and murder him. Then there was that whole 40-day thing in the desert with the devil. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the dangers that Jesus faced, both from supernatural enemies and from natural ones. If Jesus was going to live long enough to die as planned, his father must providentially see to it he could and would get to the cross. Here's an example of God doing just that. Joseph was warned in three dreams to, number one, flee with Jesus and Mary to Egypt, number two, return from Egypt, and number three, to settle in the region of Galilee. And so the father did all of that providentially, coming to Joseph, giving him those dreams. Joseph obeyed in order to keep baby Jesus safe and get him from infancy into young adulthood, and then ultimately to the cross. Jesus trusted his father to preserve him. He trusted in God to keep his uh, prov promises rather by that providence. 
Now, I overemphasized at the beginning the fact that we understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man because I'm going to do some speculating, not in a weird way, but I don't want anybody to think this, you know, that I don't believe that. But think about in eternity past, uh, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, planning out the redemption of human beings and the restoration of creation, and Jesus saying, hey, I'll volunteer to be incarnate and to be the unique God-man from that point forward into eternity. But Father, I'm going to be a baby for a while, and you're going to have to protect me. You're going to have to see providentially that I get to the cross because I won't be able to do anything about that myself. And then later, as a human being, I'm only going to do what you tell me to do. So again, preserve me through your providence, through your interruption into history and, and your overruling uh, sovereignty to get us to that place. It's very interesting to speculate on those things. Now, this is certainly a messianic psalm, but that doesn't mean it had no application to David or to us. While we will keep our attention on the Lord, we don't want to miss any encouragement for ourselves. For example, our lives as believers are also full of spiritual danger. We too should and can trust God's promises and his providence. He will preserve us, although it may not be in a way that we desire. We can always know that he's working to preserve us. Verse 2 says, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Commentator Adam Clark says of this verse, and I quote, there are almost endless explanations of this. No man can read it without being confounded by it. In terms of it being applicable to David and to us, it makes sense. For one thing, no amount of goodness, no amount of good works are commendable unless they're done for the Lord and empowered by him. But in the Lord, our goodness, our good works affect others for God and will be rewarded. It's a pretty good deal to be a servant of the Lord because he tells you what to do. He empowers you to do it. And when you get to heaven, he's going to reward you for what he empowered you to do uh, that you had very little uh, to do with. And it's, it's, a, it's a great system. And so work for the Lord. Bless the Lord with your good works. What does it mean if Jesus is talking? Perhaps, as we've already said, that he would live a fully human life on earth, depending upon his father, just as all human beings must. We're not at liberty, therefore, to think that life on earth was easy for Jesus because he was, after all, God. He depended upon his father just as all believers ought to. I don't know if you've ever thought that, but there are people who do, and, and um, I've maybe thought that sometimes. Think, well, you know, the Lord's telling me to do this, but, but he was God. Of course he could do it. But Jesus said, no, I, I set all that aside. I didn't, you know, divest myself of it. Yes, I was still God, but I only did what human beings can do filled with the Holy Spirit. And I did that to be your example, to show you that you can attempt that with the Holy Spirit. You're never going to be perfect because you're in a, a body that's unredeemed, a body of flesh. But uh, what Jesus did is an example to us, a real example. And like a peer, he experienced the same things we have. And that's why the writer to the Hebrew believer said, Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Verse 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. First thing to note here uh, in passing, he says saints are on the earth. No one is declared a saint after their death by meeting certain man-made criteria. All believers are saints right now who are on the earth. 
You might not act saintly, but you are considered a set-apart one, a saint. And they're set apart, and God already sees saints. He sees you and I as excellent. He sees you completed. And he can see you that way because he's the one who's going to finish what he has begun in you. Like an artist or a craftsman who sees the final creation in his or her mind. Those of you who are crafty or artistic or like to build things, sometimes people explain to me what they're going to do with a pile of what looks like garbage to me and junk or wood. I, I can't even imagine, you know, I'm going to route this and we're going to put cables on and, you know, the next thing you know, it's a mall or something. I don't know, but it's, and it, I, but the artist can see that the artist conceptualizes and visualizes the finished work. God said he will complete the work that he's begun in you. It's a promise. He's not going to try to get to it after some other problems. You're not that car in the garage that has a tarp over it and boxes piled up on top of it constantly working on you, and he will complete that. And so you are his excellent ones on the earth from his perspective. He sees the final creation. Jesus and David took delight, it says, in fellowshipping with saints. In Christ, we are all members of his one body. You notice how we have an immediate intimacy with Christians, even who are strangers. You ever just run into people and figure out they're Christians, and you feel like they're your long-lost family? And, you know, it, it, you don't even know their names yet, but you share in Christ and, and you're all members of the body. You've been baptized into that body by the Holy Spirit. Verse four, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Now, this seems an odd thing for the Lord to say. Of course he wouldn't do this, but don't forget he was tempted to do this. In the desert, the devil came to Jesus seeking worship, offering the world on a platter. Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. I'm the God of this world. I'm the ruler of this age. I'll give it to you if you'll just worship me. Satan must have thought Jesus could sin because he tempted him to sin. In fact, it must have baffled Satan to deal with Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? There had never been anybody like Jesus, never will be again, the God-man. Satan had a pretty good track record of temptation. We're not told in Genesis how long it took, but the impression you get is that pretty much as soon as Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they gave into it and ate the forbidden fruit. I mean, it could be that part of the record is left out and that they resisted, you know, for a long time, but it, it seems pretty straightforward. The serpent tempted them. Hey, look at that fruit. Why don't you eat some of that? Sure, why not? And then throughout his career as a tempter, Satan had a pretty good track record. Cain kills Abel, Nimrod starts killing people, the Tower of Babel, then he corrupts the human race so that there has to be a global flood. I mean, this guy's on a roll. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, and he misses every opportunity to kill him when he's a baby because of God's providence. And finally, there he is, 40 days in the wilderness, weak physically, and Satan comes to him, and he, he can't get any traction, can't make any headway with the guy. He says he leaves him to come back at a more convenient time, and otherwise he tapped out, maybe for the first time in history. How do you deal with a God-man? He never did figure it out. It, it, was, it was too profound for him. I don't know what he thought was happening on the cross, but it wasn't a victory for him. It was a victory for us. He must have been massively frustrated trying to find Jesus' kryptonite. 
You know, in the movies, somebody there's always a problem. You know, a weakness. Every hero has a weakness, whether it's a person or an object or something. And Jesus, he just it, everything is a strength. By the way, Jesus did not sin, not ever in any way. Theologians argue, however, about whether he could or could not have sinned. It's one of those intellectual arguments that I suppose is important on some level. You may encounter it in a book sometimes, so that's why I bring it up. And everybody has an immediate opinion. Oh, of course he couldn't have sinned. And then you hear someone, well, maybe he could have sinned, but he didn't. It doesn't matter. He didn't sin. And that's the important part. David knew the Jews had a tendency toward idolatry. How often in their history we read of them chasing after other gods, offering them sacrifices. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Think of this as applying to the saints. Turn from following the Lord and you're going to experience spiritual ruin at some level. Now you may prosper in this world materially. The devil still offers kingdoms to those who are willing to turn aside. Remember, though, we're not living for a measly 70, 80, or 90 years on the earth. We're prepping for eternity. You don't have a moment to waste on anything else but serving the Lord. Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. These two verses seem to augment one another. They're picturing life on earth as a believer as if it was a pleasant estate that you have inherited. And like an estate, it has boundary lines, what we would call your lot in life. The good inheritance means you have inherited everything that also belongs in that household of faith, that belongs to a member of God's family. Now think of Jesus saying this, knowing his lot was to go to the cross. It was God's cup for him to drink. He nevertheless knew what he would eventually inherit, and that, the Bible says, is you and I. Jesus did what he did for you and I. There was no necessity of it. Uh, you know, he wasn't pushed into a corner. This was a voluntary submission to his father coming as a God-man in order to die for the sins of the world, for the sins of people like you and I. Sometimes we forget that the world means people, you and I. He became the savior of all mankind, especially those who believe. You may feel bound by circumstances beyond your ability to change. And the truth is, your lot in life may indeed be poor, whether that means financially or physically. But you can be certain God will provide every spiritual resource. It's your promised provided inheritance. You may never be rich, but you can be rich in faith all of the time. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in night seasons. Jesus thought of counsel as hearing from his father and then doing what he said. He spent many a night, even all night, in prayer. And Here we see it was to be instructed. Again, the idea is to hear and to obey. Can we talk about what we commonly call counseling for a moment? That's my way of saying we're going to talk about that for a moment. And acting polite. Uh, first... First thing I like to say about counseling is you really can't counsel a non-believer. Now, it doesn't mean you don't talk with them or you shut them out. Uh, quite the contrary. But think about it. You can counsel a non-believer, but you have to realize they have not got the indwelling Holy Spirit in order to obey God. So if they're having trouble in their marriage, non-believing couple, and you, 
you know, the answer to that is in Ephesians, the famous marriage scripture that you hear at almost every wedding. Husband, love your wife the way Christ loved the church. What does that mean to a non-believer? Nothing. And even if it did mean something to them, they cannot do it. You and I can barely do it with the Holy Spirit on board helping us. And so counseling non-believers is really what we call pre-counseling, which is nothing more than evangelism. So you need to steer the conversation back to the fact that they need Jesus Christ. And then in Christ, they will be able to uh, be instructed and counseled. Second, regarding believers, something J.R.R. Tolkien wrote applies, I think. Frodo once asked Gildor the elf for counsel. Gildor replied, elves seldom give unguarded advice, for advice is dangerous, even from the wise to the wise, and all courses may run ill. But what would you? You have not told me all concerning yourself. How then shall I choose better than you? And it's true. When you're talking to people who are seeking advice, omissions and sometimes even lies hinder giving correct counsel. Even if you are truthful looking for counsel, without a supernatural word of wisdom, it's hard to give wise counsel beyond suggesting scripture that seems appropriate. Uh, so you understand? I mean, let's say you're having marriage problems. They're not, they didn't just happen overnight. It maybe took you 10, 15, 20 years to have the problems that you have. It's like a web of problems. How can somebody in an hour really deal with that uh, unless we just go to the scriptures and trust the power of the Holy Spirit? And by the way, here's something else. This is a rabbit trail from the rabbit trail. So our idea of counseling even in the church, and I, I, I've done this, don't, you know, I'm, I'm in it, I'm in it with you. Our idea of counseling, somebody calls, they need counseling, they come in for an hour. Where does that model come from? Is that a biblical model? I don't mean it's non-biblical or that it can't work, but do you read anything like that in the Bible where Paul said if somebody's having problems, have them come in for an hour once a week until they're not having problems anymore? That's a worldly model. And so even though we don't like to say that, we have adopted the world's method of counseling people. And there are times I've had to dismiss people after 15 minutes. They're like, hey, I still got 45 minutes. I said, no, you're, we're done. You need to do what I told you to do. I mean, I've solved it. I've counseled other people for years, and I, I, I can't help you. I just, it's not working. Find somebody who's smarter, who has, uses more petabytes than I, you know. You need a petabyte guy, not, I'm, I'm just a, what's smaller than a, what's the smallest unit, a bite? I've got a few bites left and that's about it. So, so I'm just saying it's a worldly model. So just know that. I mean, you know, it's just something we've adopted because that's what the world does and now that's what the church does. I guess the bottom line here is Jesus got counsel from his father directly. We can get counsel from Jesus uh, directly as the Holy Spirit applies the word of God to our hearts. And if you seek counsel from humans, seek counsel from those who will tell you the truth, and by truth I mean who will seek that out in the word of God and say, hey, regarding your marriage, this is what you're supposed to do. I can't do that. <laughs> now that's the problem. Yes, you can do that. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell you to do that. And so let's deal with that. So um, interesting stuff. All right, back out of both rabbit trails. As the donut man sings, I like the Bible. I like the Bible. I read it and I do it. 
I read it and I do it. Right? That's the, so that's how I'm going to counsel people from now on. I'm just going to sing and we're done. <laughs> As a hologram. The only way... <laughs> The only way to properly close this first point on the life of Jesus lived for you is to quote from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is the life he lived for you, excellent saint. And so verses 8 through 11, Jesus sings praise to his father for the death he died for you. I don't know why, but I want to think of Peter singing these four verses in his Pentecost sermon. Why not? The Jews gathered in the temple, they would have recognized it immediately as a song. And maybe they even sung along. You know, we don't, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know. And this is a psalm. I mean, I sing during my messages, right? So why wouldn't the Jews who were prone to singing psalms that they had memorized? If not, the words at least would have been stuck in their minds afterwards for a long time. So let's read them in their entirety. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter applied them in Acts, and this is what he said. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, According to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up. We are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you see and hear. Now, Peter quoted a few other passages from their scriptures. Those Jews hearing that first sermon of the church age, it might have been the first time in their lives they understood that their scriptures were alive. They had sung this song who knows how many times, maybe a lot because it was one of David's golden engraved songs. And then all of a sudden, Peter says, bam, this is about the Messiah. It's Jesus. He just died and rose from the dead. You are living this prophetic history. It sends chills up my spine. And I wasn't in that audience. What an amazing thing. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Where is Jesus seated today? According to Colossians 3.1, he is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 10 of this psalm says the same thing. And many other scriptures concur. Because we know that, we might miss what... Uh, David just wrote. Verse 8 says, he is at my right hand. David is picturing God at his right hand. Now, because on earth David was in a relationship with God, as he set, really preferred the Lord before himself in his daily life, he could speak of the Lord as being his right-hand man. And so we're not, it's two different metaphors. Uh, or one's actually a metaphor, one's the truth. Jesus is literally, physically at the right hand of the Father in heaven, 
But from our point of view as believers, we can say he's our right-hand man because we're walking with him all the time. There have been a few truly great right-hand men in literature and on film, and I'd say it boils down to two, Chewbacca and Samwise Gamgee. You, I mean, Chewie, really? I mean, what he went through with Han Solo? But I'd have to go, I'd tip the hat to Sam. Without him, Frodo would have failed. Sam was there for him at every twist and turn. On the basis of this psalm, I think it is orthodox to say that while we are on the earth, we can think of Jesus as our right-hand man. Without him, we will fail. And not just at every twist and turn, but on every straight and level path as well. Without him, we can do nothing. Of course, in reality, Jesus ascended to heaven and currently sits at God's right hand, signifying his shared power and authority with the Father ensuring us he can and will complete the work. And not just his work in us that we've talked about, but in creation. Having redeemed his creatures and his creation, then Jesus will return and the future history we read in the unfulfilled prophecy of the Bible will consummate in his new creatures living in his new creation. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. I wonder if the backup singing was I'm So Glad by Cream. Remember that? Can you hear him singing the song and in the back? I'm so glad, I'm so glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. No? How many of you are familiar with I'm So Glad by Cream? Well, you know, first service, one person was, so it was a great song. Still is. Anyway, I think Ginger Baker died, though, and that's sad. All right. Uh, verse <laughs> David was glad and he rejoiced, knowing death would not be the end. He even hinted at resurrection when he said his flesh will rest in hope. If you didn't know these words were from this psalm, you'd probably think they were in the New Testament. For you will not leave my soul in shoal, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Uh, Sheol probably here just means the afterlife or the grave. And in the case of unbelieving or believing rather Old Testament saints, that would be Hades. And so it's like we would say somebody is in the grave. We're not speaking of their specific grave, but just in general in the afterlife. So Sheol and Hades are a little bit interchangeable as long as you know that Hades is a real place and that's where the uh, spirits of Old Testament saints went before the resurrection of Jesus. The insight was uh, that David's soul was in Hades and his physical body did see corruption and so he was writing without realizing it about his future descendant, the Messiah, who would be Jesus. Jesus had absolute confidence he would rise from the dead as the first fruits of those who would believe in him. And again, in this world that I'm trying to not be a heretic in, where Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are all talking about his incarnation, you know, at some point Jesus says, hey, I, it, I don't know what it's going to be like to die. How does the God-man die? It's too mysterious for us to understand. But Father, you're going to have to raise me from the dead, and I'm going to have to trust you to do that. And uh, it's, it's so amazing to think of what Jesus did, not just was willing to do, but he did on our behalf in order to save us. We may not all die. The rapture is imminent. If we do die, being absent from our bodies, we'll be present with the Lord to await our resurrection. Show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That first phrase, show me the path of life, that's our life on the earth. We've already talked about Jesus doing and saying what his father revealed to him. His father showed him his path to the cross. For example, the Samaritan woman. 
Jesus spoke to. At that point in the Gospels, Jesus said, we must go through Samaria. And the disciples said, no, actually, we don't have to. It's easier to go this way, and we don't like Samaritans anyway. And Jesus said, no, we have to go there, and that, because that's where his father was sending him. And then he has this amazing conversation with the Samaritan woman. And so we see Jesus being led by the Spirit. How does he do that to us? Well, he certainly doesn't show us very much in advance. Uh, and that's good, because if Jesus showed me a lot in advance, I'd never get there. There are certain places and certain things and certain events that you think, I'll pass on that. If that's what I'm going to do when I'm 55, uh, forget it. You know, I'll, I'm taking a left turn. That ship might be going to Nineveh, but I'm going the other way. And so, so it's good that God doesn't show us the future. He shows us the way, and not a good illustration, but I think it makes sense, the way a realtor would show you a house. They accompany you and they show you things. Look at what it looks like, uh, the curb appeal of this house. What a beautiful doorway. Look at the atrium. All the detail was spent in the living room, and this will be beautiful. Your kids can play in the backyard. And so the Lord shows us the path by walking with us on the path. And, and if we're tent attentive, we can hear him speak to us through the still small voice of the Spirit and see what he wants us to see. And we can look to Jesus and go where he wants us to go and say what he wants us to say. The final phrase is in verse 11, that's eternity, guaranteed and glorious. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Uh, people say that there's not a big description of heaven. Of course, there's quite a bit in the passages that talk about heaven, especially in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But really, do you need to know anything more about heaven than this? That you will be in the presence of Jesus with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is heaven. And it's, it's yours by inheritance. Your right-hand man is seated at God's right hand. From that seat, he sent the promised Holy Spirit to dwell within you. You can thereby do all things through Jesus as he strengthens you and leads you. Let's pray.